Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. of God, three other people have done so as well, and they've decided to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to accept his invitation to walk in newness with him forever, and so today, as usual, uh, the, by, the, by the grace and the blessing of God, we get to celebrate because our family is getting bigger, so would you turn your attention to the screens as we rejoice over the fact that some lost people have been found. Well, good morning, church. Please be seated. If you're visiting Christ Church this morning, we're glad you're with us. My name is Mark, and I get the privilege of 
uh, being one of the ministers here on staff. And we're really glad that you're with us this morning. And let me remind you why we do this on Sunday mornings. We don't do it because it's Sunday, and we don't do it because we just want to gather crowds. We really want to inspire people to walk by faith, to understand what faith is and the benefits of faith and who our faith is in. It's in Jesus and his work that God sent to earth that he might become our king. And so we hope that you are a worshiper of Jesus. And if you're just trying to figure this all out and figure out what church is, we're really glad you're with us. You're always welcome here because we're unashamed of what faith brings and the life and hope that comes with it. So we hope this morning that you will come and position yourself in such a way that you will open your heart and mind to what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be taking on a very serious subject matter in the history of mankind, and it's the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to focus this morning to awaken our souls. Even if you've never heard the story before, it's a perfect place to be. If you've heard it 150 times, it's a perfect place to be. Because the story is true, and it's impactful, and we want it to make a difference in people's lives as we walk by faith. Uh, we want to inspire you. We want to give you a chance to hear the word of God. Uh, we want you to be able to uh, look at the most important action ever taken by a person on earth and the impact it's had throughout time. We'll give you a chance to listen this morning. We're going to give you a chance to sing, to think, to remember when we gather around his table what he did for us. And we're going to give you a chance to sacrifice, to, to, to give of your treasures so that this story that we're telling today can be told throughout the world repeatedly, over and over and over to people who've never heard it and people who have heard it a lot. We're going to be spending this week and next week looking at the crucifixion. We're going to do it in two distinct ways. Today we're going to look at the crucifixion from what was done to him. Just stopping, pausing, slowing everything down, letting the word of God be spoken, and let the scriptures be read, and just look at what was done to him. And next week take a different approach to the crucifixion that brings us into it. This will be a, a little bit different than most times we gather on Sunday. So if this is your first time, this will be a little bit weird for all of us, but it'll be good. Uh, we'll ask you to remain seated the entire service. Uh, we're going to ask you to sing if you want to, but if you just want to sit and reflect, use that time to your advantage as well. We're going to allow the reading of the word to pour over your minds and hearts today. There'll be a lot of scripture used as the stories are told. We've done something distinct this morning. We've taken the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've mashed them together with the relevant details all included. So it's a composite of the four authors' eyewitness accounts. Some of them know it firsthand, and others received it like Luke did from other sources. But those eyewitnesses are telling us what took place, and we're just going to process that together. We'll do it with one voice. There'll be a chance for you to, to think and to react and to praise the Lord. And even at this time, I know it seems a bit awkward for some, but maybe, but it's, I'm unashamed of it. We're going to ask those that are taking up our offering this morning to move into place, please, at this time. And the reason we want to do this is because we believe that the story that's being shared this morning through the reading of God's word is the most important facts that people need to know. They need to know, instead of covering for themselves and finding their own identity, we find our identity in the work of Jesus Christ. And we have an opportunity every time we gather, not only to continue promoting the message here in the four states area, but all throughout the world, an opportunity for us to invest our treasures into telling the story, the good news, the, the evangelism, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you've prepared yourself to be generous, to give for that cause, now will be the opportunity for you to share those gifts that will be used for the message and glory of Christ to go forward. Please pray with me. Father, we give this morning because you gave so much. 
Father, we don't give as a tax, and we don't give to make up for wrongs done. We don't give for our own acclaim. We come bringing gifts this morning that we might send out preachers and teachers, that we might send out materials, that we might send out benefit and love through money or through medicine or through food or through shelter, that we might speak the name of Jesus in such a way that its practical love is felt in our community and it's felt in our state and our world. God, that somebody, because of a gift given today, Father, we pray that you take it and make it more than money. I pray that you take it and make it a life changed. That someone will know Jesus better because of a sacrifice made here this morning. As we celebrate his story, may we share his story. This would be our prayer and why we give. In the name of Jesus, amen. As you give this morning, let me tell you where we are in the story of Jesus. For those of you who may have been traveling or gone, Jesus has left the upper room where he established the Lord's Supper and then he prays for his disciples and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays for their unity. He prays for the strength to fulfill his calling. Not my will, but yours be done, he says to his father. Judas comes and brings the Roman soldiers to arrest him and Judas kisses him in an act of betrayal. Jesus says to the Roman soldiers, who are you after? And they say, Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And they fall on their faces expecting because of all they've heard about Jesus, they expect to die for coming after him. And Jesus, in an act of graciousness, you're gonna see this repeatedly this morning. Jesus, when he should have been caring for himself, in an act of graciousness, always protects the ones he loves. He says to the Romans, don't touch these men, just take me, I'm the one you want. And they take Jesus. He's had a long night already, a night of pain and weeping, of sweating profusely so much that that he sweated blood when he was praying. He's exhausted emotionally, and they arrest him. They take him to the high priest where he is ridiculed and beaten. And then he's, because they can't do anything to him, he's sent to Pilate, the Roman representative in the area. Pilate can't find anything to do with him, so he sends him to King Herod, who's the Jewish king placed by the Romans, and Herod wants him to perform miracles and tricks, and Jesus refuses, and when he refuses to respond to Herod, Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate has him tormented and brutalized, tortured, if you will, so that the the people that are calling for his death will lighten up. They refuse to. So Pilate, in an act of cowardice, has Jesus beaten, scourged, tortured, And then he decides to give in to the political pressure of the Jews for fear that he might be seen by Caesar as not standing up to someone who called themselves a god. And he has him given over to the Roman soldiers who are going to add to his misery. Listen to what the first or the eyewitness accounts tell us about the punishing walk that Jesus took to his execution. And when the soldiers had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out, carrying his own cross, to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. 
For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall and myrrh, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. i 
they put the purple robe, sign of a Roman king, Pilate did on Jesus. It may have been the act of kindness, the only act of kindness in the entire day. You see, normally Romans recorded that they would strip those that are being crucified and make them go through the city, a final humiliating act, naked, dragging the crossbeam. Jesus had already been beaten, so to the extent that the Roman law would allow, so they couldn't beat him on the trip, so they lay this royal robe on him. His back is open. He has open wounds. He has clotting blood. The abrasion, the horrible pain he must have gone through. And then on top of that, he would have been forced to carry the crossbeam on which he would be nailed. That crossbeam could weigh anywhere between 50 and 75 pounds of rough sawn wood on his back, rubbing over and over on the spots that he had been shredded. And as they would go through the city, he would be bounced in and out of the crowds. There was a large crowd. Hundreds of thousands of people would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. So the streets would be crowded in the marketplace, and the Romans would bring the people through the city so that everyone would know. You see, crucifixion was one of those moments that told everybody who saw it happening, don't mess with the Romans. And so Jesus would have been beaten, exhausted, broken, a 75-pound piece of wood on his back that he had to drag through the city. It's no wonder that the scriptures say that he fell. And when he fell, they made Siren, or they made another man, Simon of Cyrene, carry it the rest of the way for him. He was at the point of physical exhaustion. The centurion who would lead crucified people through the city would carry a placard in front announcing who they were and why they were being crucified. Jesus' sign is significant because it simply says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. There's no... No, no crime. There's no charge against him. It's simply a claim of fact. And that you'll hear in just a moment that the, the religious leaders were upset at Pilate. They were saying, don't say that he's the king of the Jews. Say that he says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate would just tersely respond, I've written what I've written. Remember, Pilate knew that he was an innocent man and he was tired of the Jews haranguing him over this man, so he announced at least he should be king. And he sends him down the road. Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers to tell us that Jesus noticed the women weeping on the side of the road as he passed by, torn to the, to the, to the extent that the Old Testament prophets said he didn't even look human. And these women were weeping. And you might read it as if Jesus is rebuking them, but what he says to them is actually the prophecy that he gave earlier in the week when he said to his disciples that it would be better not to be in the city when that day comes, that the wrath of God comes down on Jerusalem for its rejection of him. And we would know beginning in 68 A.D. all the way through the the triumphal uh, takeover of Rome over Jerusalem in 70 A.D. that Jesus was prophesying to these women, it is better not to be in the city when this day comes. He's warning them. Another act of his mercy toward other people in the midst of his tragic pain. And Jesus isn't alone. We know that there, there are at least two that will be crucified with him. Why does that matter? Because the Old Testament prophecy said that he would be numbered among the transgressors. He would die among sinners when he himself was not. And once they arrive at the public execution site, they offer Jesus a bitter drink, a glass of wine or a cup of wine or something full of wine. And most scholars believe that this was to numb the pain. It was a merciful act someone gave him to take away the edge, if you will. And Jesus refuses it, probably because he wanted to to realize the full extent of the suffering to have that moment where he took on the wrath of God at sin and experienced it fully. He refuses to. Jesus is cursed. 
He's cursed in the eyes of all the Romans because crucifixion was for the worst people. He was cursed in the eyes of his Jewish people because he was hanged on a tree outside the city, which fulfilled prophecy found in Deuteronomy 21 and Leviticus 24. And he was hung between two criminals, which was prophesied in Isaiah 53. All this because he accepted in his body the sins of humanity. So we've seen the walk of shame and horror and pain that he endured to get to the place of execution. Let's listen to the firsthand accounts of the cruelty of the crucifixion. Here they crucified him, and with him two other robbers, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross above his head. It read, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross and save yourself if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel, the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Let him come down now from the cross that we may see and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. 
They would take Jesus to the place known as Golgotha at roughly 9 a.m. in the morning. At least least three crossbeams had been prepared. Crucifixion was such a horrible form of torture and humiliation that the Romans would only use it for for slaves and for the worst type of criminals. In fact, the citizen of the Roman Empire could not by law be crucified, no matter what they had done. Criminals were crucified naked, adding physical and mental humiliation to their family and friends. Death generally came slowly through loss of blood, exhaustion, and most likely suffocation. Some victims survived on the cross for days in excruciating pain. Josephus, in talking about the Roman form of crucifixion, being a Roman historian, said that many times people would become nauseated going by the crucifixion site, not only to see the torment, but to hear the person on the cross pleading that someone would put them out of their misery. The New Testament does not dwell on the horror of what Jesus suffered. Perhaps because in bearing human sin, he suffered more than that, than just the physical part. In fact, all four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, simply state this fact with sober brevity. They crucified him. It's all the details they give. Based on Roman historical accounts, Jesus would have been laid on the ground, on the beam. His hands would have been tied to the beam and they would have driven spikes in each of his hands. But be careful, the English word for hands may not actually be the word that it would be translated in the original language. It would have been in the forearm, about two inches below the wrist. They would have been tied, and those nails would have been driven in, bringing even more excruciating pain on top of all the other horror that they had gone through. Once they were affixed to that beam, they would be lifted up and stationed on the support beam and then dropped into the hole in the ground, to a jarring effect that would be hideous. The cross is now lifted to display its spectacle. The Romans would plant crosses along roadways and walkways into the city and out of the city. So once again, someone would walk by and see someone being crucified in the middle of an everyday life and remember to themselves, do not mess with Rome. Jesus hangs helplessly, welcoming death to deliver him from this agony. He's a few feet off the ground when he surveys the crowd. As bad as the scene is, as your imagination allows you to take the words and see the pictures that your mind produces, imagine people standing at the foot of someone being brutalized like this and cheering it on and mocking the people on the cross. The religious leaders that were relentless in getting Pilate to to have Jesus unlawfully killed are standing there and making fun of him, calling out prophecies that he made, like, you said you would tear down the temple and in three days rebuild it. What are you doing up there? So, it was so horrible that the two criminals, it makes no sense. The two criminals on both sides of him on the cross were making fun of him too until one of them, in a moment of enlightenment, realizing how futile this was to make fun of a dying man while he too was dying, repents and cries out to the other, shut up, we've deserved what we have. He's not claiming innocence, but Jesus is innocent. It's in those moments, Jesus looks down and sees his mother. The women are gathered at the cross. 
the only disciple that we know of that was there because Jesus had prophesied that they would abandon him is John. And as Jesus goes up on the cross, he sees John and he sees his mother and Jesus, another act of his mercy. When he should have been caring about his own heart, he looks down at his mother and he says, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, John, take care of her. She's your mother now. You see, Jesus was their oldest son. It was his duty to care for his mother, which makes us believe that Joseph was gone too. And at this moment, John takes Mary away. Jesus grapples for breath to speak. His body is hanging on his limbs, which are being torn in the tendons. His body is broken. He hasn't slept in possibly 24 hours. He's been beaten. He's had no food. He's had little to drink. And he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You see, the cross is brutal. The cross is tragic. But the cross is nothing if it's not about forgiveness. You see, the cross is all about forgiveness. Jesus did not have to go. He's, he could have spoke a word in front of Herod and been freed. He could have spoken a word in front of Pilate and been freed. He could have snapped his fingers or wished the angels to come and they would have been freed from the Roman oppression. But he doesn't. He goes to the cross as our Passover lamb to bring us forgiveness. It was common for the executioners to confiscate, confiscate his clothes, stripping him naked on the cross. And they think that they're in power now They'll take his clothes. They'll do what they want with it. They'll gamble for them. They'll make fun of this dying man taking his last earthly possessions. They think they're in charge, but do not be mistaken. God is in charge. And what they are doing is simply fulfilling a prophecy that God said would happen to show us the horror of evil and what it does and to show us why God would ask Jesus to go to the extent to show us his love and the horror of evil. The chief priests call out to him, if you really are who you say you are, and if God really loves you, where is he now? Why isn't he protecting you now? Come off the cross if you really are. If God really loves you, come off the cross by his power. And David, King David, would write the 22nd Psalm, which you will hear Jesus quoting repeatedly through the crucifixion. And in this, David forecasts what the Messiah would go through in an extent to show us God's love and to deal with the evil that is sin. See if this doesn't sound familiar. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus could not save himself and save us, so he chose us. I ask you today, will you choose the one who chose you over himself? Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? Jesus could not save himself and save us, so he chose us. He voluntarily gave up his life so that you and I could have our lives restored through his sacrifice. We see the excruciating walk to the place of execution. We see the cruelty he experienced, both physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. Let's listen to the account of the fulfillment of his sacrificial death for you and I. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And at the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so immediately they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last, bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sure. 
Last week, as Jesus stood before Pilate, and with a simple word, a simple explanation, he would have been freed. We, we talked about the strong name of Jesus, but in his weakness, he showed his strength. In his submission, he displayed his character. He displayed his love. He displayed his dignity. This week, the word is not strong. This week, the word is broken. But today, we gather to realize and stop in a very painful way to spend an unhurried piece of time thinking about the brokenness of our king who gave himself up, who allowed all of these cruel acts to happen to him physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually so that we might never know that for ourselves. We've tasted it, which led us to him, but we've never experienced it to this degree. And we think of the brokenness of Jesus And it's not a sad thing for us because we can actually, through the cross, celebrate his brokenness as the greatest gift of love we've ever been given, the greatest example of love ever shown. There was a letter written by an author, which is found in our Bible. It was written to the Jewish Christians of the first century. You know it as the book of Hebrews. This was a a letter written to be handed out to Jewish Christians to remind them that they did not return to the old failed symbolic things that Jesus in himself was enough. And in the ninth chapter of that book, Hebrews chapter 9, something is written that talks about the way we can get caught up in symbols and miss the point. Listen to what is said. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in the ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. Here's our hope. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The priest would sprinkle the symbols of heaven with the blood of a perfect calf. Yet Jesus would go into the most sacred places and he would sprinkle the heavenly things with his own blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And as he created the table that week and gathered his disciples around and he said, I will eat this with you here and then I will not eat it again with you until my kingdom comes. And one day we will gather around this table and the simple things we do here today are symbolic of what Jesus did for us. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death. As awkward as it sounds, may we celebrate the death of our king on the cross for the act of love it was. He said, for as often as you eat and drink, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as we do, each and every week we do, for the purpose of reminding ourselves of his broken body and shed blood given for us 
that we proclaim his death until he returns. So this morning, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower, if he is your king, to be your savior, he must be your king. And if he's your king, he must be your savior. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, as the emblems are passed, take the cup and the bread and eat and drink in remembrance of King Jesus who went to this cross and said, it is finished, meaning that you and I are free, free of our sins by the blood of the lamb. Let's pray. Father, we receive you this morning. We receive this cup and this bread symbolic of your body and blood. We receive your goodness. We receive your pain. We receive your humiliation. We receive all that you did to show us the power of love and the hope of grace. We eat and drink this morning, not because we're worthy, but because you are. We testify in this room amongst our family and friends and even surrounded by strangers we have yet to meet that the one thing we have in common is your gift of this cross. That you truly as a man went and suffered in all possible ways. That we might live free by your power and through your name. And Jesus, through that strong name, we receive our broken king. To your praise, glory, and honor. Amen.
At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died and saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and praised God and exclaimed, Surely this man was the Son of God, a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Many women who knew him were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Love is mighty. 
of the heavens appeared at the death of Jesus. As he was dying on the cross in the final three hours between noon and 3 p.m., all of Judea went under darkness. Can't be explained by an eclipse. They don't last that long in the rotation of the earth. Darkness has been a sign of God's judgment all the way back into Amos chapter 8. In that moment, the entire area became dark. A supernatural sign of judgment. After six hours on the cross, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the hardest parts of the cross if we can escape the physical pain that Jesus went through. It was this the moment that he cries out. It's the first cry of pain we hear from him. It's when he cries out and says to his father, where are you? And we struggle. I don't know if just it's me, but I've talked to others. We struggle with the wrath of God abandoning Jesus. Jesus came because God asked him to, and we often can see this painted like it's a character flaw in God that he's so against sin that he would turn against his son, but you don't understand. God has to be consistent to his nature, and his nature is holiness, and that holiness doesn't turn itself away from us. It turns itself away from sin. And God turns his back on the sin that was all over Jesus. You see, when he went to the cross, he didn't go to the cross to give us an example. He went to the cross to take our sins with him. And in that moment, for the first time in Jesus' existence, the absence of God's presence was felt. It's the thing that made him cry. And he cries out, and the crowd misunderstands what he's crying for, and they begin to mock him even more. He asks for a drink, and they reach up with some fluid on a sponge, and they reach it up to his mouth. I want to be discreet because there are children in the room, so... Allow me to simply say it this way. My research indicates that they would use these sponges to wipe off the excrement and the vomit of people that were dying from physical exhaustion on the cross. That was put on our Savior's mouth. Jesus turned away, and he uttered the words, it is finished. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, when Jesus cried out that where was God, it wasn't with anger. It wasn't in shock and horror. It was in pain. 
And then he turns and says, Father, I'm coming home. And he commits his spirit into the hands of our God. And our King Jesus was gone. His work on earth was done. And at the moment of his death, there was another phenomena that happened. The earth shook, an earthquake. Sign again in scripture of, of God's judgment. And it was in that moment like he appeared before Elijah, not in the earthquake, but in the still small whisper, this earthquake happens and tombs are emptied. And the curtain is torn in the temple. For people living in Western world, what, is, what does that all mean? Remember just hours previous, maybe as many as minutes previous, they were making fun of Jesus as he died, saying, you said you were going to tear down the temple and restore it in three days. Do it now, big man. He had no clue that while they thought Jesus was escaping his prophecy, he was fulfilling it. Because upon his death in the Holy of Holies, which was a place in the tabernacle, in the holy temple rather, in the place in the temple was the Holy of Holies. It was a special place that they could only go in one year on the Day of Atonement when the blood sacrifice of a lamb and one set free would be taken in there and it would be sprinkled over everything as we read previously. And it was the place where the presence of God would be found. And the high priest was chosen once in his lifetime to go in one time and they would tie a rope around his ankle so if he died while in there, nobody could go in and rescue him. They could drag him out. That's how sacred and holy this place was to them. And upon Jesus' death, the temple curtain was torn. My research indicates it was 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, and about four inches thick. No man could tear that. No matter how strong you thought you were, you could not rip that. It was ripped by the hand of God. And this place that was so sacred where the presence of God could be found was now open to all people. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews was writing, Jesus sprinkled the real things, not the symbols. And he opened it all up so that the presence of God would not be found in a building on a mountain in Israel. The presence of God will be found in the souls of everyone who claims King Jesus by faith. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God would come down on all who believed and would fill us and replenish us and bring life to us. The same spirit that led Jesus is leading us and they made fun of him. They hadn't seen anything yet. His death introduced a new holy of holies found inside each one of us. This earthquake. The veil between us and God was torn away, and the tombs that would hold us in our death are now opened by his resurrection. And who's the first person to get it? It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't the scholars of the scriptures. It was a Roman centurion, a paid killer, who had killed many people in this fashion. He watched the way Jesus died, and he's the first person to get it, and he says out loud, this truly was the Son of God. Just by the way, he graciously lived in his death for you and I. The crowds go away mourning. It fulfills another prophecy. Zechariah chapter 12. The crowd that once chanted, kill him, kill him, kill him, saw the way in which he died, saw the dignity in which he died. And they walked away sorrowful. They had seen a tragedy. They had brought a tragedy about, and they were broken by it. That same feeling will play itself out in the book of Acts when they cry out, what must we do to be saved from what we've done? The punishing walk to the execution the cruelty he experienced, his death as our sacrifice, the power of the moment, 
Listen to what they tell us happened next. Now it was a day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of clean linen cloth. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb cut out of rock in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Then he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of Joseph, were sitting there opposite the tomb and saw where he was laid. These women, who had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Jesus died at three in the afternoon and the time would come at six o'clock when the Sabbath would begin and not only the Sabbath, but the Passover. And in this moment, the Jews don't want anybody on the cross especially a Jewish person, on the, pass, or on the Passover, nevertheless, the Sabbath, and they go to Pilate. It's a risky thing to go to Pilate. You just got him to do this action for you. Now you want to show some semblance of mercy in their minds. They go to Pilate, and they say, can we break the legs so that they die quick? They have to be off at 6 o'clock, and Pilate allows it. They go to Jesus, and they're going to snap the legs. My research indicates they would have snapped the thigh bones so that the body weight would have dragged and they would have expired much more briefly, but also more painfully. And they get to Jesus, and it seems like a small, significant moment to notice that, that he would not have his legs broken because he had already died. 
but you have to understand the Passover lamb to be perfect according to the Old Testament law had to have no broken bones. It had to be perfect. And so Jesus is gone and the paid killer, the centurion reaches up with his spear to test it if Jesus is dead and he punctures his side and blood and water come out separately and medical people will tell you that that shows that the body had ceased to function. He had not fainted. He was not faking it. He was not in a coma. His body was done and so was he. He was gone, and Pilate is stunned that it would happen so quickly. He was only on the cross for six hours, but the torment and torture, I don't want to defend Jesus, but I don't want you to think Jesus was weak. Please remember, they did not kill Jesus. Jesus gave his life away. It was by his control, by his own power, he allowed these things to occur, and so they don't break his legs. And Joseph, who at one point struggled to be associated with Jesus, takes a risk, he and Nicodemus both were, were religious leaders. They were rulers, and they stood up for Jesus privately, but they didn't publicly because it says that both were scared what would happen to them if they sided with Jesus, but now they don't care. They saw the way he died, and they give themselves to him in loyalty, and they go to Pilate, and they're exposing their loyalty to him. Pilate could have them killed too, but they go, and they ask, and Joseph says, I have a tomb that's never been used before. Can I have the body and place it in my tomb? And Pilate relents. And Nicodemus who joins his comrade, and he brings 75 pounds of these ointments, these very expensive things. You see, you wonder why these details are in Scripture, because the prophet said that it would be rich men that took care of him in his death. And 75 pounds of this aloe and this ointment and this myrrh, remember that those were some of the things that were brought to Jesus when he was born, brought to Mary and Joseph. And so they enter in to this place and they prepare the body and what they would do is they would wrap the body in these ointments and these strong smelling things and they would wrap them in cloth and they would lay the body in a tomb and nine to 12 months later after the body had decayed they would go in and they would take the bones out of the wrappings and they would bury just the bones this was a tradition and Nicodemus and Joseph do this thing for Jesus to honor him to take care of him and to a certain way to associate with him and the women that surrounded Jesus see this moment and they follow him to the tomb and they identify where the tomb is because they want to care for him too and they want to make sure he's cared for properly. Time is passing quickly. And they want to make sure it's done well and so they have to wait. They have to wait till the Passover and the Sabbath is ended, which means they have to wait till the crack of dawn. They can't go Saturday night because it'll be too dark and it's not safe for them to be there. Roman soldiers are posted outside. You see the body would have been taken in and put into a tomb and there would be a ledge. There'd be an a space lifted up that they would lay the body and then they rolled a stone in front of it and Pilate didn't want them fighting over the body so Pilate had Roman soldiers stationed outside of the tomb and the women have to wait till Sunday morning at the first crack of dawn whatever time that was in the morning when the first light hit they wanted to go now listen they were waiting to honor their dead king and they waited a long period of time an entire Friday evening entire day on Saturday waiting until the first light on Sunday to go and honor a dead king. But church, we have good news. You and I are not waiting on a dead king. We're waiting on a risen king. And the one we celebrate today, for many people think cross was the defeat. No, you must understand. The cross is the victory and the resurrection is the proof of it. What Jesus does on the cross, this bitter moment we end with today, we need to think and be changed by the truth of it. Not just, yeah, yeah, that was in a story I read, or I get it. No, it's to stop and ponder and carry the weight of the price Jesus paid to show you his love. He 
chose us, will we choose him? I don't mean have you chosen him in the past. I mean this day. Are you changed by the truth enough to choose him over and above anything else? Some of you today are not disciples of Jesus. I don't say that in any condemning way. I'm simply saying that you have not reasoned through this. You have not made your own decision, or maybe you have and you're choosing not to. We are glad you're here today. For those of you that call yourselves disciples of Jesus, and I don't mean that in any indictment, but if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, will you choose him again today, having sat at the foot of the cross to see love displayed and the wrath of God poured out on what sin did to creation? And Jesus received both of those. He received the love offered to us and our response to it, and he received the wrath of God so that we would never face that. So this morning, if you're called by the love of Christ on the cross to make him your King Jesus, not a dead king we wait on, but a risen king we wait on, don't leave this day pondering another thing. Make your choice today. And if you should choose to make your choice today, Go to these tables in the back of the room with the lamps lit. Or meet us out at the prayer center. There'll be several, I'll be out there, several of our staff, some of our elders will be there. Come have a conversation about, I want to know more about this Jesus. Because he's calling you to follow him. And we would be happy to show you what that means. And walk with you as you learn to follow him. Just like we saw depicted this morning in the three pictures of people who made a choice to say, I'm going to follow this king, not a dead king. We don't wait on a dead king. I'm waiting on a risen king. How about you? And we live our lives to bring him glory and honor and praise. So this morning, let us remember that the cross is the victory and the resurrection is the proof. And we live by that power. You are dismissed. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.